Hi, this is Andy Oram, and today I'm talking with Sean Sukter, the co-founder and CEO of Pepperdata. Sean has been working with Hadoop and distributed systems for more than 15 years. He was the founding general manager of Microsoft's Silicon Valley Search Technology Center, where he integrated Facebook and Twitter into Bing Search. And before that, he managed the Yahoo Search Technology team, the first production user of Hadoop, and you may remember that Yahoo had an early association with Hadoop and related tools. So now Sean is running Pepperdata, where he is focused on the real-time optimization of clusters running these tools. So Sean, I understand that today we are focusing on Spark. Yeah. So uh, it has been heralded as maybe a replacement for Hadoop or next generation of all the uh, big data uh, tools. So what do you think of Spark? How would you characterize it? Well, I mean, I wouldn't really say that Spark is a replacement necessarily for Hadoop, because when I say Hadoop, I really mean a collection of many different uh, projects that are all under an umbrella of Apache Hadoop. And that includes not just MapReduce and Yarn, but the file system and many ingestion things and different analytical engines. Uh, and Spark is another analytical engine. So it gives you more capability to do a certain kind of analyses and certain kind of data processing way better than you could with traditional MapReduce, for example. But it isn't really Spark is not really designed to be a replacement for the file system or Yarn and its scheduling capability. Uh, so I wouldn't really say that you should think of it as a replacement. But for some people who, uh, when you talked classic Hadoop and really the only engine was MapReduce, it's entirely reasonable that most MapReduce workloads and that specific subpart of Hadoop will migrate uh, dominantly to Spark instead of MapReduce as the underlying engine. So let me perhaps uh, show my ignorance, and you can let me know if this is right. Uh, I see Spark as being very versatile. Like It can take data from HDFS, but also from many other sources, whereas Hadoop tends to be more limited. Is that true? Um, I don't think that that's really quite the accurate thing. I, I, I've seen people using... Uh, traditional Hadoop systems, you know, even MapReduce systems uh, or uh, Tez systems or many different engines that run alongside, you know, inside of Hadoop and pulling from not just HDFS sources, but pulling from external sources too, right? I've seen people uh, read right from databases uh, with Hadoop workloads. Uh, and so, you know, I really any of those are, are uh, Spark is not alone in its capability to read from external things. It does, however, have some nice properties uh, in terms of how it caches that data uh, in RAM in what it calls RDDs, uh, which has really useful abilities when you're trying to you know, pull data from sources that you may want to read several times in order you know, to reread that. Theoretically, that was all possible with other tools too, but uh, Spark has some really nice pre-built-in functionality that makes the use case pretty easy. So would you say that Spark is a tool for uh, modern systems with larger memories? 
Yeah, it sparks ascendance is really partially because there is a lot more memory on systems nowadays. Uh, and Spark takes advantage of that. Uh, you can, the RDD paradigm, where you say, hey, let's load up a lot of uh, data into RAM and then operate on that many times, really works when you have enough RAM. So the amount of RAM becoming available now that you, know, you regularly have uh, machines whose RAM footprint is measured in you know, how many hundreds of gigabytes you have uh, has really helped. There's one other interesting thing that's really helped and is very smart about, uh, you know, RDDs are really smart about. The, one of the key concepts in RDDs is that you only have one copy of a given shard of the data across the cluster. You pick one machine's RAM to put that in. And if other machines need to access that data, they can just access it through the network. Uh, and this is really smart because it's actually faster with modern hardware to access some other machine's RAM than it is to access your own disk. Uh, and that hasn't been true. If you go back, you know, a decade or two, that property might not have always been true. Uh, so the additional speed of networks uh, has really helped the idea that we can throw a lot of stuff in RAM, but we can do a couple critical optimizations to make sure we're not double using the RAM and take advantage of the relatively fast networks we have nowadays. So maybe we'll talk about uh, what this uh, new speedup has to, um, what effects it might have on configuration and things like this. But I would ask you, what does Spark offer in a nutshell besides speed? Well, it, it, it offers a more flexible uh, computing model. Right, uh, traditional Hadoop MapReduce really was this very strict: you do mapping, then you do reduction, and you know, then you spool data to disk, and then you could run another MapReduce job that has to read the data from disk. Um, so there's there's this very very fixed mapping and reduction, which is kind of limiting. Um, it's it's totally a when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. MapReduce is you only have a hammer, and Spark is the whole workshop. You get lots of little tools that you can go use. And also, you don't have to throw data out to disk every time, which is uh, fairly useless if you're going to be operating on the same exact data again. So you, you write it all out to disk, and then you read it all back in. Uh, and so the idea that you have, you don't have to like very strictly write it out to disk every time, and you have more than just a hammer. You have this whole workshop is really useful. And not every programmer has to use all the tools, you know, not everybody has to code directly to the Spark API, just like not everybody had to code directly to the MapReduce API. People used higher level abstractions such as Hive to, you know, access things in SQL. Uh, in MapReduce, a Hive query had to uh, run, write many different MapReduce jobs, which took a long time to execute, and, and Hive kind of had to go nuts to actually make the thing, to, to make programs that would correctly work. In Spark, it's relatively straightforward because there's so much more powerful uh, tools to use, even though the user may just perceive it as Hive. It has much more um, sophisticated pipelining. Yes, definitely.
So maybe you can suggest a few common use cases where people would use Spark and others where they would fall back on MapReduce. You mean where they would fall back on MapReduce? Yeah, or? compare Spark to MapReduce perhaps in the ways people would use uh, the tools. Well, I mean, there are cases in which they're relatively interchangeable and there are cases in which they're not. Um, and I think I should touch on both. So cases where they're relatively interchangeable is when you're doing uh, either a big, you know, some kind of batch analytics workload. You, it could be a big long batch that may take hours to run and you have a lot of input data. Uh, probably it's some kind of unstructured input data. You want to run over that and, and you may take hours to run, you may take seconds to run, but this idea that you've got a bunch of input data, you've got a bunch of computation that you want to do on it, and then you want a result. And so those, that paradigm, uh, they're relatively, you know, or they're conceptually interchangeable, except that Spark will offer you a uh, cleaner computing model, and it will offer you uh, higher performance. The cases where they're not interchangeable is, you know, things like when you want to do machine learning algorithms that tend to operate on the same data over and over again. Theoretically, you could do that in MapReduce, but you wouldn't because what might take you, you know, minutes in Spark would take you days or weeks in MapReduce. So you just wouldn't even conceive of doing that in MapReduce. Things like streaming computations, like Spark streaming, where you actually want to uh, take data, input into a cluster, do real-time data processing on it, and get an answer out the other end in seconds, because it might feed the next chain in, in some, some business application. You would never even conceive of doing that at that kind of, you know, in that kind of architecture with MapReduce. It isn't really compatible. And what is the relationship between Pepper Data and Spark? Well, so Pepper Data is all about adaptive cluster performance. So we're uh, really focusing on what happens once you get clusters that need to perform really well and are potentially very multi-tenant. Uh, and multi-tenant now comes in a couple different flavors. There's uh, a traditional flavor where there are many different users or business units on a cluster. Uh, and that exists, of course. Uh, but it also, you know, it's kind of part of this, this data lake, data hub thing is that you're going to have many organizations on the cluster causing multi-tenancy and, and causing interesting performance challenges. Uh, because you know, the, one of the reasons you don't want to put multiple users on a cluster is because you're scared that the next guy might screw up everything you've already got running, which is a performance challenge. Um, but you have a new kind of multi-tenancy coming in with Spark. You have multiple different computing engines on the same cluster as each other. So now, you know, maybe some new project in some given organization is coming in using Spark, but you've got the existing stuff that's running, running MapReduce, running Hive, running Impala, you know, running, you've got a lot of existing things that are using the cluster, and you've got this new thing, Spark, coming in. Uh, and Spark uses memory and network and disk in new and unusual patterns compared to the traditional tenants. Uh, and so the chance that you could run something, you know, somebody's experimenting and trying the new uh, ad hoc queries, you know, their new analytic systems in Spark, and that they would screw up the production workload, that's a pretty reasonable fear.
that that would actually happen. It's, I mean, we've seen it happen many times. Uh, and that's a real shame because using this new engine can bring organizations a lot of value. And so the idea that operators have to be cautious about letting this new thing on their cluster uh, is, is terrible because, I mean, they absolutely should be empowered to let their users use this new stuff, use Spark and use, you know, the next computing engine that'll come down the pipe. Those are really good things for them to use. But the idea that they correctly had to be, have to be very learned to be very cautious about it is terrible. And so, you know, one of the places where we come in is we allow all of these different engines, all this multi-tenancy to happen in a way that won't cause problems. So you want to let Spark come in and, and, you know, use up the RAM in a new way and, and you know, hit the network in, in you know, in, in its shuffles and its RDD accesses in a new way, go ahead. It's not a problem. That's, uh, that's where Pepperdata comes in. Yes, there are certainly resources on your website and also a couple on the O'Reilly website about um, how these jobs, uh, MapReduce, Spark, uh, Hive, and so forth, they um, usually have to have their resources specified in advance, but in fact they change radically over time as their use of disk of network and memory and so forth. Yeah, I mean they change so much and, and the idea that somebody can tune their way out of it, uh, you really can't because it changes faster than the human can react, right? You know, these conditions can change across the cluster, you know, potentially hundreds of times a second. Uh, and they change with dramatic swings. Things can go and use a hundred times more disk IO or, or suddenly flood the network. And you're not going to be able to tune an optimal answer to that or let alone optimality tune an answer that doesn't cause your production workloads to, you know, basically suddenly take 10 times what they used to take. That's not really a optimization question. That's a business criticality question. Um, tuning is not really a good answer to that. It's very backwards looking and isn't guaranteed to work. Uh, so, you know, what you really want is the ability to, to adapt and give strong QoS guarantees. Yes. I would recommend that some listeners, um, go to the Pepper Data website or look for Pepper Data resources on the O'Reilly website. There's some interesting solutions proposed there. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to ask, uh, what are some of the other challenges you see to having organizations adopt Spark? Well, I think they're getting better, first off. Um, but I can talk to some of the um, historical things. So Spark has moved uh, quite fast, uh, you know, over the last year, I, I you know, it, it seemed like every time I turned around, there was another there was another dot release of Spark, and they were material improvements uh, that made the usage of it much easier. So it was moving so fast that the business users wanted to be at the latest revision, but it took you know the cluster administrators and the distros you know packagings of Spark were still on previous versions. Uh, so we've actually seen multiple cases where the official distro version, you know, dot release of Spark was one thing, but the actual customer had hot patched and used a new version of Spark that was not the same that they had gotten shipped just because they wanted the latest version. And, you know, now you have testing and compatibility questions. Uh, that's been reacted to by the distros all speeding up what, you know, how fast they package new versions of this. So that's really helped. The additional thing is it's been not a very uh, default option 
uh, up to recently, it's been kind of an experimental thing inside the distros. I think that the new, uh, I believe that in uh, CDH 5.7, for example, Spark is still not the default engine for, for Hive queries, but it's now considered production ready. It's not a you know beta, try this at your own risk option. So I think that kind of thing of getting it packaged well and getting it uh, you know production hardened has been has been a challenge, but I think it's uh, turning the corner now. So to summarize your answer, Spark has always been slick and good, but uh, like many open source and free software projects, it took a while to get the packaging in place. Yeah, I guess that's true. And how can we expand its use, say, if an organization is using it now with a few uh, early adopters, how can they expand it to make it more available to people? Well, I think the, you know, a common way, of course, is that they're going to configure it to be the, the default engine inside of Hive. Um, Hive is unbelievably widely used inside of Hadoop. For, for anybody who's not familiar, Hive is a way that users can query Hadoop using SQL. So the, the standard query language that people are used to in querying databases, you can do a lot of queries with that. So that, you know, getting Hive to work with Spark so that users can use SQL uh, is a real enabler for a lot more wide usage. And I'm sure the other things are, are you know, training are, are critical things. The, uh, another, of course, important thing that I really am you know, Pepperdine is personally invested in unblocking, is guaranteeing that, you know, you, you of course have to have the plumbing working, you have to know how to use this tool, but then the thing that's a real shame is when you have this big red stop sign, it's like, okay, you're ready to go, but as soon as you want to do something powerful, you might put the cluster in danger. And that's a common thing that where, you know, we've seen this in, in at least several organizations where they start doing this and they start you know, getting wider outreach and everybody goes, oh, this is great, this is so much more powerful, it's so easy, uh, you know, compared to what I was used to. Let me go and use this and all of a sudden the cluster starts crashing. You know, I say, oh, whoa, we need to, you know, we need to slow down, we need to make dedicated nodes for this thing, we need to, you know, and, and the worst case, let's make a dedicated cluster and transfer the data there uh, so that we isolate. That kind of thing is a real blocker. And it, it, you know, we would hate for that to be the reason because that's a completely solvable problem. So people are over-provisioning over because they are not using their um, resources as well as they could. Yeah, or they're, you know, suddenly they, they were over-provisioning and then suddenly because of this demand, they become accidentally, you know, they, they perceive that they're under-provisioned because they're, they're worried about what this will do at peak to their systems. They're wrong, usually. They're not actually under provision. They have enough hardware. They just have to actually use it well. And those resources, again, on the Pepper Data and O'Reilly sites could be useful for people. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of, like, you know, when, when we see people seeing these things where it's like, well, I, I, you know, I have to be careful about doing this wide scale. You know, we're just doing a trial here, and we're worried, you know, we need to capacity plan for this thing. and and I know that it's starting to get used a lot more. Uh, so I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, we're just dipping our toe in this water. Uh, it's really hard to see how this, how these new engines are actually using the cluster and with the traditional tools because they just give you a node level view. And it's really hard to understand, you know, hey, when a business unit starts using 
uh, Spark or some new tool? What what does it actually mean? How much of the cluster are they really using? And and you know how hard are they actually hitting the hardware? Uh, that's a real we've seen that problem a bunch, uh, and it's a eminently solvable one. You know, it's you can you can have all those answers, and you can have a a, a safe system and rapid adoption. So there's there's really no reason to to fight that one. Um, before we wrap up, I'll just ask you to suggest if there are some other best practices for using Spark. And perhaps um, if it's relevant, you could return to my question before about configuration and understanding the role that um, having a fast network can play and stuff like that. Mm. Well, so in, uh, in general uh, best practices, you do want to make sure that you, uh, you know, feed Spark with enough RAM. You want to make sure that you are paying attention to what releases are available. Uh, and, you know, say, hey, is there, you know, am I fighting a problem that is solved in a new release because this community has moved very quickly? And you do want to put a little bit of thought to uh, how you're actually uh, laying out your computation, especially once you find expensive ones, because you may be able to be very smart about how to um, use the RDD system in an efficient way. The other thing that you... You know, there's a lot of resources on the web about how to correctly configure your your JVMs with uh, garbage collection. And since Spark is a, a heavy memory user, paying attention to how the JVM is using memory and how Spark is using different subdivisions of memory is really important. Well, I found this very useful, Sean. Thank you for talking to me today. Very nice. Thank you.